Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Today on the Beeson Podcast, we're going back to the year 1995. That's right after Hodges Chapel was dedicated here at Beeson. This is the first lectureship in the chapel after that event. It's by Dr. David C. Steinmetz, for many years professor at Duke Divinity School. Dr. David Steinmetz is a tremendous scholar in Reformation studies. I had the privilege of studying with him myself for a brief time in my own academic work. He's a tremendous lecturer, a great scholar, a wonderful Christian person. And I had the privilege of introducing him back in 1995, and so we're going to listen to my introduction and go right into the lecture itself. Dr. David C. Steinmetz. I think it is appropriate in an evangelical interdenominational divinity school that we have sung a Lutheran hymn from a Baptist hymnal in preparation for a lecture on Calvin by a Methodist minister in a sanctuary, as he says to me, that uh, looks something like the Church of Rome. It is a great privilege and pleasure for me to present to you our distinguished lecturer for this week of Reformation Heritage Lectures, Dr. David Curtis Steinmetz. Dr. Steinmetz is a native of Columbus, Ohio. He studied at Wheaton College at Drew University and Harvard University where he received his doctorate in theology in 1967. For a number of years, he has taught now at Duke University, where he is the Amos Reagan Cairns Professor of the History of Christianity. He is one of the distinguished church historians and Reformation theologians and historians of this country and indeed of the world itself. He has served as president of the American Society of Church History in many distinguished posts in professional societies. He's a prolific writer and contributor to learned journals and periodicals, as well as an author of impressive monographs that have given a real shape and direction to Reformation scholarship. One of his most interesting articles, and one that had a great influence on me, was published in 1980. It was entitled, The Superiority of Pre-Critical Exegesis. Dr. Steinmetz was a visiting professor at Harvard Divinity School when I was a doctoral student there, and I had the privilege of studying with him in several of his seminars and classes. And he also served on my doctoral examination committee, and I'll never forget that experience. I felt I was thoroughly examined when I had finished. Uh, But I would also say that he is one of the finest teachers, best, most scintillating lecturers and teachers under whom I have ever had the privilege of studying. I've learned so much for him, and it's a privilege to count him as a friend and to welcome him to this lectureship at Beeson Divinity School. We'll hear him today. Tomorrow he'll be speaking across chapel in Reed Chapel at the hour of 10 o'clock, and you all are welcome to come to that convocation. And then again on Thursday, we'll gather here for his concluding lecture at 11 o'clock in this chapel. We welcome you, Dr. Steinmetz, to Beeson Divinity School. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here in these humble surroundings and uh, (laughs) the Baptist simplicity. 
Actually, all I did was I sat beside him and I, I, I uttered the words of the Latin Mass, introibo ad altare domini, and he, he, he thought I meant that it might be just a little much for Baptists. But I'm delighted to be here. And uh, today and on Thursday, I'm going to uh, give uh, lectures on the history of biblical interpretation. And uh, tomorrow, I had intended to do one thing, but now that it's been described to me where I'll be and what I'll be doing, I think what I may, in fact, end up doing is um, present a sermon more than a lecture uh, in the tradition of the things I'm talking about, namely a sermon shaped by the tradition and rooted deeply in the Reformation. But, but we'll see. I need to talk a little about that. But today I want to begin with an, a, a lecture on uh, Calvin primarily, but Calvin and Luther as interpreters of Genesis. From 1536 to 1545, Martin Luther lectured on the book of Genesis, finishing his last lecture on November 17, 1545. His lectures were collected from student notes by some of his students and published in four volumes. The first volume appeared in 1544, while Luther was still lecturing on Genesis, and the last three after Luther's death in 1546. The final volume was published in 1552 and was devoted to the story of Joseph, the last of the patriarchs. Two years later, in 1554, Calvin published his own commentary on the book of Genesis and dedicated it in a forward letter dated July 31st to the three sons of Johann Friedrich, the elector of Saxony, who had died in March. Calvin had intended the dedication to be an ecumenical gesture toward the Lutherans and was therefore chagrined when the princes rejected the dedication on the recommendation of their theological advisors. The letter to Calvin from the Saxon Chancellor Francis Burchardt indicated that the Lutheran theologians were convinced that Calvin taught an entirely unsatisfactory doctrine of the Eucharist, a charge that Calvin tried to answer in his long controversy with Joachim Westphal and Tillemann Hesshusen. Intense arguments in the 16th century about the Lord's Supper. And I, I, on, on Thursday, we're going to touch on this to some extent. You have to remember, arguments about the Lord's Supper are, first of all, arguments about the Lord, and therefore they are always arguments about the nature of salvation. Um, I, I, I need, perhaps, therefore, before the lecture on Thursday, to say just a few words uh, for, uh, for people who stand in the low church tradition and wonder what the fuss is about. Furthermore, they complained that Calvin had made insulting remarks about Luther in his commentary on Genesis, an accusation that Calvin flatly denied. Calvin admitted he was critical of some of Luther's exegesis, but, but not in a spirit that denigrated Luther's contribution. Perhaps the Lutherans took offense at Calvin's dismissal of Luther's exegesis of Genesis 11.27 as frivolous or of 13.14 as lacking solidity. In his reply to Chancellor Burkhardt, Calvin regretted the rejection of his dedication by the Lutherans, though he noted wryly there was very little he could do about the unwanted dedication since the books in which it appeared had already been printed and placed in circulation. While he confessed that he accepted as serenely as he could the decision of the princes, he repudiated the grounds on which they had made it. It seemed to Calvin that the Lutheran theologians in Saxony brooked no deviation from Luther's exegesis, thereby demonstrating 
what Calvin could regard only as a supine veneration for Luther's words. If Luther were beyond criticism, there would be no need for any future commentaries on Genesis. This was the point to be examined, wrote Calvin. Whether I had eagerly sought after different meanings, whether I had wantonly attacked or spitefully carped at or insultingly inveighed against him. In truth, most accomplished sir, if your leisure permitted you to read over the whole book, you would find in it nothing of the kind. In a letter to Melanchthon written in early March 1555, Calvin complained bitterly that Melanchthon was not doing enough to restrain the Lutheran theologians who were looking for a suitable pretext to crush him and by extension Calvin as well. It would not be easy to bridle such wild beasts, he admitted, but we must accomplish what God requires of us even when we are in the greatest despair respecting the results. In a letter to a colleague at Erfurt, Calvin contrasted the Genesio Lutherans, those are the people who claim to be authentic Lutherans, I mean really faithful to Luther. Uh, Calvin contrasted the Genesio Lutherans in Saxony with Luther, although, and now I'm quoting rather freely from Calvin, they do not possess a single one of Luther's virtues. By their lusty bawling, they give themselves out for its genuine disciples. Furthermore, they cannot assent to anything that comes from this quarter, and Calvin may have had the rejection of his commentary on Genesis in mind because we do not chime in with all the opinions of the Saxons. They are violent, obstinate, incapacious, frenzied, implacable, contumacious, ignorant, barbarous, and arrogant. They go out of their way to raise disturbances without a motive. While they ape Luther, they do not imitate his virtues. In short, cried Calvin, would that Luther were alive today. The assumption being on Calvin's part, he'd put a swift end to the Lutherans. What I want to do in this lecture is to accept Calvin's challenge to Chancellor Burkhardt to examine his exegesis of Genesis in the light of Luther's interpretation of the same text. I am not interested, of course, in demonstrating that Calvin was critical of Luther. He freely admitted to the Saxon theologians that he was, or in measuring the degree of Luther's influence on Calvin's interpretation of Genesis, though that influence is measurable and can, to a certain degree, be tracked. What I have in mind is a somewhat more modest goal, namely to compare their exegesis of Genesis in order to identify more accurately their similarities and differences as biblical commentators. The point of this exercise is not merely to clarify the nature of their relationship, though that is in itself a worthy goal, but also to set in sharper relief than would otherwise be possible the image of Calvin and Luther as interpreters of Genesis. In order to provide a larger context for this reassessment of Luther and Calvin, I want to sketch in briefly a picture of the interpretation of Genesis on the eve of the Reformation. Although this could be done in a variety of ways, I have chosen to do it by examining the Genesis commentary of the great 15th century biblical commentator Dennis the Carthusian. Dennis's commentary on the literal and spiritual senses of the Pentateuch was available to Calvin's contemporaries in printed editions such as the attractive folio volume published by Peter Quintel in Cologne in 1534, the same year in which Calvin wrote his first theological treatise, Psychopanachia. Now, the reason I'm picking medieval exegesis is that we all learned in Sunday school that everything in the Middle Ages was bad, and then the Reformation came, and suddenly someone turned the lights on. 
Uh, in point of fact, things are a little more complicated than that. Obviously, it is not possible within the limits of one lecture, or even a dozen, to examine the interpretations of the whole book of Genesis by Dennis, Luther, and Calvin. What I propose to do is examine in detail, but within 50 minutes, the exegesis of what Luther called one of the most obscure passages of the whole Old Testament, namely the story of the wrestling match beside the brook Jabbok between Jacob, who was returning to the Promised Land to meet his alienated brother Esau, and a mysterious man who appeared to attack Jacob by night without provocation and who dislocated Jacob's hip shortly before dawn. The story is found in Genesis 32. I'm going to assume that you need to have it read. Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he struck him on the hip, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then the man said, You shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with humans and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life is preserved. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. And then we get a little kosher rule at the end of the story. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the high muscle, thigh muscle that is on the hip socket because he struck Jacob on the hip socket at the thigh muscle. Kind of anticlimactic, but there it is. The first question that troubled uh, Dennis was whether the wrestling match was physical or spiritual. Did Jacob actually wrestle with a mysterious stranger beside the Jabbok, or did he receive a private vision, unwitnessed by anyone else and in the nature of the case unverifiable? Supporters of the hypothesis that Jacob received a vision have to explain how Jacob could have been lamed by it. I mean, after all, he's limping after this vision. Um, supporters of the hypothesis that the match was wholly physical have to account for the fact that wrestling seems at times to be used metaphorically as a synonym for prayer. Although Dennis did not take a strong position on the issue, physical or spiritual, he appears to agree with Hugh of St. Cher that Jacob's wrestling match was both, though in what proportion it was impossible for him to say, both physical and spiritual. On the other hand, Dennis was in no doubt, whoever, who the mysterious stranger was. Jacob's opponent was a good angel appearing in the form of a man. Dennis was eager to refute what he reported as a Jewish legend, namely that the angel with whom Jacob wrestled was Esau's guardian angel. According to this reading of the text, Esau's guardian angel had met Jacob at the Jabbok to impede his progress into Palestine and to wrest from him, if possible, the primogeniture and blessing Esau had lost to Jacob. So the angel is there to stop him. When the angel could not overcome Jacob, he wept and pled both for himself and for Esau. The difficulty with this story, of course, was that an angel would have known the mind of God in this matter and would not have gone against it. God had judged Esau unworthy to receive the primogeniture and the blessing and given them both to Jacob. 
What had transpired had taken place by the will and direction of God. No angel would have attempted to undermine the plan of God. Besides, Dennis added, angels do not cry. It is incompatible with their perfection. An alternative theory identified the stranger as Jacob's guardian angel rather than Esau's. According to this account, the angel had accompanied Jacob from Mesopotamia to Palestine and wanted to leave him at the Jambok. But because Jacob feared his brother too much and did not trust God enough, he refused to let the angel go and kept him in place through prayer. The so-called resting match occurred because Jacob's mind had withdrawn from God through diffidence, and when the angel lamed Jacob, he did so as a punishment for Jacob's lack of faith. Other interpreters found no grounds in the story for assuming that Jacob was being punished by God for his faults. The story could be read in a far more hopeful vein. God wanted to give Jacob greater spiritual gifts, and greater gifts presuppose greater struggle. At any event, the point of the struggle was comfort. Through it, the angel saved Jacob from unadulterated human fear and comforted him in the Lord. Dennis was even willing to claim that the angel confirmed him in the hope of eternal salvation. The question not unnaturally arose in the minds of the readers of the Jacob story why the angel was unable to defeat Jacob. As a heavenly being, the angel was surely more powerful than any mortal, even a patriarch who bore a divine blessing. Dennis answered the question by appealing to the theological distinction between potentia absoluta, or absolute power, and potentia ordinata, or ordained power. Considered absolutely, the angel could have crushed Jacob at any time. But it would have been unfitting for the angel to unleash overwhelming force against Jacob. It was never a question of cannot, but only of will not. What was at stake in the angel's defeat was not sheer energy, potentia absoluta, but divine purpose, potentia ordinata. In the end, Jacob kept the angel in place by humility, devotion, love, and prayer, and not by his skill as a wrestler. The angel could not get away because Jacob prayed, not because Jacob was stronger than the angel. Equally puzzling is why the angel asked to be released at daybreak. Angels are creatures of light and ought not to be alarmed at the rising of the sun. We are not dealing here with a vampire. Devils may scatter at dawn, but surely not angels. Dennis offered several traditional exegetical suggestions to explain the baffling urgency of the angel's request. It is dawn is breaking. Angel has to go. Perhaps the angel was late for choir. Since it was time to appear in the heavenly court and sing the praises of God. Perhaps the angel thought it was time for Jacob to be on his way to the meeting with Esau, whom he dreaded so much. Or perhaps the angel thought no one should see him except Jacob, although, as Dennis noted, this explanation was not very convincing, namely that people would see the angel. Angels can only be seen by mortals when they want to be. An army of angels could be camped on the banks of the Jabbok without drawing attention to itself. The angel then asked Jacob his name. Of course, the angel knew Jacob's name already. It would be unthinkable that he did not. 
the wrestling match was no random encounter. It's not just somebody attacking whoever happens to be in Central Park. The angel is going for Jacob, so he knows Jacob's name. The angel asked Jacob his name, much as a priest asks the name of a child at baptism, not because the priest doesn't know the name, he does it already, but, but so that he could do more fittingly what he intended. What he intended was to change Jacob's name to Israel. Dennis engaged in some discussion of the philological history of two Hebrew names and, like Jerome, accepted the interpretation of the names offered by Moses. Jacob was no longer the supplanter, but like the angel of prince with God, the point of the change of name was to signify that if Jacob had not been conquered by the angel, he would not be conquered by Esau. Jacob, in his turn, asked the name of the angel, but the angel refused to tell him. Dennis could find no fault in Jacob for asking, since Jacob only wanted to increase his knowledge of divine things and invoke and honor the angel by his own name. So why the angel denied Jacob's request is less clear. Perhaps the knowledge Jacob sought from the angel was too high for a mortal to grasp without the gravest difficulty. Or perhaps the question was unanswerable because most angels have no fixed names, but derive their names from the tasks they are assigned. Michael and Gabriel are obvious exceptions. Rather than disclose his name, the angel blessed Jacob. The form of the blessing was not recorded in the biblical text. Because of this silence concerning the words of the blessing, some interpreters have concluded that the blessing was, in fact, the change of name. After his encounter with the, angel, uh, uh, with the angel, Jacob made the astonishing claim that he had seen God face to face, clare et facialiter, and lived. Dennis was inclined to discount this claim. Jacob was no Moses. Unlike Moses, Jacob did not see God in the incomprehensible and invisible nat nature of his deity. Jacob's experience was not a theophany in, the, in that sense of the term. <clears throat> what Jacob saw clearly with his exterior eyes was an angel in human form who appeared and spoke to him in the person of God. In that sense, and in that sense only, was it appropriate for Jacob to claim he had seen God and lived. However, if we set aside the literal sense of the text, one could agree with Augustine and Isidore that the angel with whom Jacob wrestled was Christ. After all, Dennis believed that scripture contained both a spiritual and a literal sense, so on the literal sense we have an angel, on the spiritual sense we have Christ, even though he devoted his primary attention to the literal. On the spiritual level, Dennis compared Jacob to contemplatives who wrestle with God in prayer and who will not let God go until God blesses them. Such a wrestling match is never with a mere angel, but always with Christ. Now I want to move on to Luther. What Dennis accepted is the spiritual sense of the text Luther advocated as its literal historical meaning. Jacob's antagonist was not an angel, certainly not Esau's guardian angel, not a devil, and not flesh and blood. Jacob's antagonist was God, or as Luther would also say, Christ, appearing in hostile form. Now we're into Luther's point. This is a hostile God. This is not, you know, the God of picnics and uh, 
the God who presides over the universe like a senile old beneficence. Although God was not in reality hostile to Jacob, quite the contrary, he was and remained a loving father, he nevertheless showed a dark and threatening face to Jacob in order to test his faith. To provide a New Testament frame of reference for Jacob's ordeal, Luther appealed to the story of the encounter between Jesus and the Syrophoenician woman. According to Matthew's account, which is 15, starting in verse 21, according to Matthew's account, an unnamed woman asked Jesus to heal her daughter. Jesus refused on the ground that she was not an Israelite and even compared her to a dog. It is not fair, said Jesus, to take the children's bread and throw it to dogs. Yes, Lord, replied the woman, yet even dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Jesus was so impressed with her answer and her faith that he granted her request and healed her daughter. In his Faustin Postilla, published in 1525, Luther included a sermon on this pericope. The Syrophoenician woman provided for Luther an outstanding example of the boldness faith must exercise in the presence of a seemingly hostile God. She accepted without a murmur the judgment of Jesus that compared her to a dog. Rather than defend herself from such a comparison, she demanded from Jesus a dog's rightful share. Where could Jesus turn? Luther asked triumphantly. He was trapped by his own words. What the woman discovered by boldly confronting Christ was that his no was not no at all, but what Luther called a deeply hidden yes. Therefore, concluded Luther, sweep your heart clear of such feelings and trust firmly in God's word and grasp from above or from underneath the no, the deeply hidden yes, and hold on to it as this woman did and keep a firm belief in God's justice. Then you have won and caught him with his own words. These are all very important phrases for Luther. The deeply hidden yes the no, the seeming no, the implacable God, we grasp the deeply hidden yes and we trap Christ, we catch Christ with his own words. In his lectures on Genesis, Luther returned to this text and its themes. Faith should not draw back when it feels the wrath of God or endures his implacable hostility. Like the Syrophoenician woman, Jacob, now, seen through the grid of the Syrophoenician woman, Jacob did not falter or turn aside when faced with God's opposition in his lonely vigil beside the Jabbok. But against God's relentless opposition, Jacob pressed forward and conquered God's wrath by God's promise. Although God appeared unfriendly, he was in reality a loving father. Undeterred by the unexpected opposition of God, Jacob grasped the deeply hidden yes underneath God's no. I will not let you go, he cried, unless you bless me. Luther's reconstruction of the wrestling match turned what Genesis described as a quiet struggle by night into a noisy and inelegant brawl. Only three brief conversations are recorded in Genesis, all of which occurred at the end of the match. Luther found such silence unnatural. In his view, the opponents struggled in the darkness with arms and words alike, as two wrestlers usually do. 
The stranger, in a terrifying voice, bombarded Jacob with a string of disquieting thoughts as they wrestled. You must die, Jacob, for you are not the man to whom God gave the promise. God does not want to keep even the promise he has given to you. You must perish, Jacob. You're in for it. To which Jacob responded, No, that is not God's will. I shall not perish. I may be pushed, assailed, and thrown down, yet I shall not die. In the deep darkness of that night, declared Luther, Yes and no, there assailed each other very sharply and violently. When the traditional questions were asked about Jacob's conflict with God, Luther gave a somewhat narrower range of answers than Dennis had given. Why was the stranger unable to defeat Jacob? Of course, the stranger could have defeated Jacob at any time, but did not want to use more strength against Jacob than a man could use. In addition, God helped Jacob in his struggle against the stranger through the power of the Holy Spirit. Why did the stranger demand to be released at daybreak? The stranger wanted Jacob to let him go because he needed to return to his own proper tasks. What was the name of the man who wrestled with Jacob? Luther believed that Jacob was completely in the dark about the stranger's identity until the very end of the conflict when the stranger told him that he had triumphed over God and humans. Only at that point did Jacob know he had wrestled with God in human form. That is why Jacob claimed to have seen God face to face. He saw him both hidden and disclosed in Christ. What was the content of the blessing Christ gave Jacob? Moses did not reveal the text of the blessing, but Luther suggested it must have been the same as the blessing given to Abraham and Isaac. The renaming of Jacob offered Luther an opportunity to underscore what he regarded as the main point of the story. Jacob's name was changed from Jacob to Israel, from supplanter of Esau to conqueror of God. Now he picks this language on, it's language that is very disquieting to Lutherans. And of course, it wouldn't disquiet Baptists to talk about conquering God. Or would it? Um, Jacob had conquered God with God's own promises. He had grasped God's deeply hidden yes. The notion that Jacob had conquered God as the Syrophoenician woman trapped Jesus with his own words was and remains absurd to philosophy. Nevertheless, theology is willing to claim that God is conquered by faith, though it does not claim that God is thereby made submissive to human will. God can be conquered. God cannot be tamed. Against God's opposition, but by God's will, Jacob triumphed over God by holding fast to the promises God seemed to have abandoned. He bravely and stubbornly opposed God's apparent hostility and refused to accept God's no. For Luther, bold opposition is what faith is all about. It is tested in triumphs, triumphs in the dialectic of God's yes and no. Let us compose a proverb from this history, Luther concluded. <clears throat> When you think our Lord God has rejected a person, you should think that our Lord God has him in his arms and is pressing him to his heart. Throughout his exposition, Luther maintained a clear distinction between historical and allegorical interpretations of the Jacob narrative. Though he complained about the misuse of allegory by some theologians, he did not reject a limited use of allegorical approaches to the Bible, and so forth. Now I want to move to Calvin. Whereas Dennis was interested in overcoming Jacob's all-too-human fear of Esau and Luther in resolving Jacob's crisis of faith, Calvin was interested in Jacob as an exemplary model. 
What Luther regarded as the allegorical sense of the text, namely Jacob as an example of a tested believer, was collapsed by Calvin into the literal sense. I just mentioned this, that you have to be very careful when you say the Reformation is for the literal sense, you know what you're talking about. Because uh, the Reformation fills the literal sense with spiritual meaning. Or to state that more precisely, the text as Calvin read it had two purposes. To warn Jacob of the conflicts that still awaited him and to assure him he would triumph over them and to represent all the servants of God as they are tested by God in this world and to remind them that once, what was once exhibited in visible form in Jacob is daily fulfilled in individual members of the church, as in Jacob, so also in us. Unlike Dennis and Luther, who thought the conflict was both physical and spiritual, Calvin insisted Jacob's wrestling match was a vision. Calvin did not deny that Jacob's struggle was a real event with real physical consequences, and commentators like Dennis were, of course, to correct to point out that Jacob's lameness was no figment of his imagination, but the wrestling match was not an external event that anyone else could have seen. It was a divine self-disclosure to Jacob alone. By the same token, G Jacob's vision was not private. It was given to Jacob in order to benefit the church. That's why it's in the Bible. That's why Jacob built a monument and named it Peniel, namely to celebrate his vision and to remind the church of its continuing relevance for the life of the whole people of God in every age. Calvin agreed with Luther that Jacob's enemy was not an angel, not a devil, not flesh and blood. Jacob's adversary was God, appearing in the form of a man. Like Luther, Calvin conceded that this notion appeared absurd, but assured his readers that reason and experience taught it to be true. Jacob's enemy was God. However, Calvin drew back from Luther's position when he refused to identify the stranger who attacked Jacob with Christ. Instead, he drew an analogy between the stranger and the Holy Spirit. Just as the Holy Spirit is sometimes called a dove, so Jacob's antagonist was called a man, even though a dove is not really the Holy Spirit and the man was really God appearing in human form. Obviously, obviously such an analogy, the dove is to the Holy Spirit as the man is to God, precludes any notion of hypostatic union, therefore can't be Christ. For what seemed to be reasons grounded in his understanding of the unfolding history of salvation, Calvin was reluctant to call Jacob's vision a revelation of Christ, though he did concede in the Institutes that Jacob's vision was a disclosure of the Logos in human form. Yet this disagreement between Luther and Calvin ought not to be allowed to obscure the degree of agreement between them. God in human form, if not yet Christ, was Jacob's enemy. Even though God's intentions toward Jacob were loving and kind, he showed Jacob a harsh and unfriendly face in order to test his faith. The harshness, however, is more apparent than real. Indeed, God opposed Jacob with much less force than he used to assist him in his resistance. Now, this is the way Calvin reads the story. God is opposing Jacob, but giving Jacob a little more power than he's opposing him with. It's like playing with a child. In, you know, in which they, they, they asked him to push your hand back. And, you know, you just give less opposition than the child pushes with. Jacob did not flee from the hostile face of God, but trusted in God's providential care and so triumphed over God's opposition. 
By so doing, Jacob left an example, not only for Christians who are tested by God's open hostility in the way Jacob was, but also for Christians subjected to any kind of conflict in which God exercises the faithful. Calvin raises the interesting question why Jacob had not been tested earlier. His answer was that raw recruits are often spared from conflicts in which veterans engage. Once Jacob had been seasoned by suffering, he was led out to real war. The timing was not accidental, but guided by God's providential hand. Calvin also offered a new not mentioned by Dennis or Luther, for God's withdrawal from the struggle. God wanted to withdraw so that Jacob could rejoice in the grace afforded him. In this connection, Calvin was particularly impressed by what he called Jacob's invincible perseverance. Jacob provided for Calvin a model of how one ought to contend with God, namely by never growing weary until God leaves the conflict of his own accord. So stick to it and God will leave you alone. Calvin did not explain how Jacob could be wounded by a vision, but he did explain why. God wanted to leave an indelible mark on Jacob so that he would not dismiss his vision as an idle dream. Jacob rose from his vision with a permanent but apparently painless limp. How Calvin knows that, I'm not certain. Furthermore, Jacob's wound continues to remind Christians that they emerge conquerors from their temptations only by being wounded in that conflict. The limp serves as a permanent sign that Jacob triumphed in God's strength and not in his own, and as in Jacob, so also in us. Calvin agreed with Luther that Jacob did not know who his assailant was until daybreak. The key indicator that Jacob knew what had transpired was when he asked the stranger to bless him. Since in Calvin's view, blessing is the act of a superior to an inferior, Jacob's request signaled his realization that the mysterious man was in fact God. God then changed Jacob's name to Israel to indicate that his victory over God implied that he ought not to fear any lesser en enemy, and so forth. Now let me just say some conclusions about all of this. You've now heard more about Jabbok than you can preach on in the next 50 years. I hope you took notes. When we place the three expositions of Genesis 32 by Dennis, Luther, and Calvin side by side, we can see clearly several important similarities and differences. <clears throat> for example, Calvin is the only one of the three interpreters to opt for the story of Jacob's conflict with a mysterious stranger as a vision. Dennis and Luther seem to accept it as both an internal and an external event, partly vision, partly physical trial. Similarly, Calvin is the only one not to refer to Jewish exegesis of the text. Both Dennis and Luther mention especially the Jewish suggestion that the stranger was Esau's guardian angel, even though they emphatically reject it as a silly fable. Calvin does not allude to Jewish exegesis at all. More importantly, Calvin is the only one of the three not to use the distinction between the literal or historical and the spiritual or allegorical senses of the text. Luther praises the historical sense over the allegorical and may even at times create in some of his hearers the false expectation that he will reject the allegorical sense altogether. However, he has nothing of the sort in mind, preferring merely to restrict it. 
Allegory may properly be employed by theologians and preachers for the decoration and illustration of doctrine. Now, that's the old rule for allegory, that you cannot prove a doctrine from allegory, but you can use an allegory as by way of illustration of a doctrine grounded in literal sense. Because Dennis accepts with a tranquil conscience the traditional notion that the Bible contains a spiritual sense as well as a literal, his literal exposition is remarkably free from spiritual applications. He focuses on the narrative and its meaning and postpones a discussion of its spiritual application until he has finished his discussion of its literal sense. His separation of letter and spirit and postponement of a discussion of spirit gives his literal exposition a curiously modern feel, at least in comparison with Luther and Calvin. Luther finds spiritual meanings on both levels of the text. On the level of letter, <clears throat> Luther uses the Jacob narrative to show how faith conquers God by opposing God with God's promises. Jacob's opponent is not an angel, but Christ, a view that for Dennis had, Dennis had reserved to the spiritual sense. On the other hand, he labels as allegorical the notion that Jacob provides an image of all the saints who are tempted and tested by God. Calvin rejects, or perhaps I should say more accurately, makes no reference to or use of two levels in the biblical text. He does not believe it appropriate to identify Jacob's opponent with Christ on either an allegorical or literal level. Jacob's opponent is not Christ, contra Luther, and not an angel acting in the persons of God, contra Dennis, but God appearing in human form. Luther is also wrong to appeal to allegory in order to make the point that Jacob is the model of believers who are tested by God. Jacob as model clearly belongs to the literal sense. That is for Calvin. It is the literal meaning of the text. As I said, we have to be very careful when we say the reformers were for the literal sense and know what we're talking about. While Calvin rejects two levels of the biblical story, he nevertheless affirms a twofold sense of the letter. The story as letter focuses both on Jacob, who provides an exemplary model of perseverance through severe testing by God, and on all believers who are similarly tested in this life. The exposition moves back and forth between Jacob and the church, between narrative and application, until it creates a layered effect in Calvin's exegesis. If we label the Jacob narrative A and the application to the church as B, Calvin's exposition of the story scans as follows. A, B, A, B, A, B, A, B, A, B, A, B. Those of you who took literature back before they read critical theory and actually read the text probably had to do this kind of thing. What this scanning does not convey is the relative length of the two parts. Generally speaking, the application to the church is longer than the interpretation of the narrative. The most important similarity between Luther and Calvin may be the point at which both expositors differ with Dennis and may also be their most important difference. Calvin agrees with Luther that Jacob's enemy is God, who shows a hostile face to Jacob and by extension to all believers. Both agree there is a difference between the appearance to us which is hostile and the reality which lies behind it. The underlying reality is that God is a loving Father who means such testing to be for our own good. Luther even speaks of a playful God who tests us. Yet there's a very real different difference in the development of this common theme by the two authors. For Luther, the wrestling match is a boisterous and raucous brawl in which the opponents shout at each other and strain for an advantage. 
Luther even suggests that the two wrestlers might have bellowed at each other. Although the outcome is not in doubt, subspecie eternitatis, it is not altogether clear that to Jacob, in the heat of battle, that the hostile God will not win and that his no will not be his final word. Maybe God's last word is no. Jacob must counter God's sharp no, which is after all not the no of any creature, but the no of God the Creator, with an equally sharp yes. He must exercise the boldness and cunning of faith in order to trap Christ with his own words. He must grasp the deeply hidden yes beneath the terrifying and implacable no. When Jacob is finally proclaimed a conqueror of God and given a new name, he is lying exhausted on the banks of the Jabbok, weakly hanging on to the stranger who had wounded him. For Calvin, the atmosphere of the conflict is more serenely Augustinian. Gone are the noise and sweat of battle. The conflict is viewed from the perspective of God's providential care and not from the perspective of Jacob's terror. God is against us and for us. He fights against us with his left hand and for us with his right. While God opposes Jacob, he wills him to be conqueror and so opposes him less with his left hand than he supports him with his right. Unlike Luther, Calvin does not add dialogue not found in the biblical text or portray the conflict as a clash of sharp and implacable no with an equally sharp and implacable yes. Instead of a harsh dialectic of yes and no, Calvin offers a gentler dialectic of left and right a left hand that never offers more resistance than the right hand can overcome. What Calvin commends in Jacob is his perseverance and not his boldness. Victory is certain for those who trust in the, in the goodness of God's providence and persevere through their trials. Now let me just say one last word. I do not want to overemphasize these differences or to suggest that they are more important than they really are. In spite of differences of style and to some degree of substance, Luther and Calvin are allies in their interpretation of the Jacob narrative. They are never, as the Saxon court theologians unfairly alleged, irreconcilable rivals. For them, the story is finally about a God who opposes Jacob and a faith that triumphs over God's opposition. It is about God's yes and God's no, God's left hand and God's right. It is about terror and courage, about promise and perseverance, and about the conquest of God. Thank you. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast. <laughs>